My name is Julian Chambliss. I'm a professor of English and a core faculty member in the Consortium for Critical Diversity and the Digital Age Research, CEDAR, at Michigan State University. Now I'll be your host for this episode of Every Tongue's Got to Confess. The purpose of this podcast series is to explore the experiences and stories of communities of color by listening to the voices of attendees at the 2019 Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Holly Baker spoke with Deborah Plant while at the festival. Plant is an Africana Studies scholar and literary critic and associate professor at the University of South Florida. She's also the editor of the recently published book, Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo, written by Zora Neale Hurston in 1931. Let's listen to their conversation. The first thing I would like to ask you um, is if you could tell me a little bit about yourself. Professionally speaking, I'm an independent scholar and uh, writer, and my um, area of research includes Africana literatures, and I think I can say that my focus is African-American lit, and with a particular special focus on Zora Neale Hurston. You were taking part in the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities this year, and today you talked about the book that you edited called Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about that book and what it was like to edit it. What was it like to edit this book? It was like some magical kind of thing, really. And just grateful to have been invited to do it. In editing the book, I had to actually try to understand as much as I could what it was that Kirsten wanted in terms of this work, what she was trying to do with it, how she was trying to do it. It wasn't difficult to edit because she left such a really clean final draft. And yeah, there were some parts of it that needed a little more attention than others. But what I'm talking about in terms of that For instance, um, if she had intended to include uh, something in a final version but somehow missed that, then I needed to insert that. Uh, Because she she had a typescript draft, but she also had previous drafts of the work. And uh, and she had some portions of it were in... uh, you know, handwriting. And so uh, the thing about it, you know, today we work at computers. So you can change one thing and not have to deal with anything else on that page. But she, she worked on a manual typewriter and she had to type every page again. And so you can imagine when you're correcting something, you may uh, introduce errors that weren't there previously. So it's looking to see where that happened, when that happened, to what extent, and things of that nature. Um, When she makes a reference to a certain person and 
I know that it's, you, you, you should have a reference note somewhere, but you find that it's in handwriting on the back of another page. You, you know, have to put that in there. But overall, the, the, the final draft was, was in excellent shape. And, and you, as a reader, as well as an editor, I, I, I was just really just very fortunate that I have the background that I, that I have because all of that came to bear on editing this, this manuscript. And what I mean about my background is that my background is Africana studies. You know, I chaired the Africana studies department. I created courses on the Middle Passage. I created courses on Black English. So, you know, so much of the manuscript is written in dialect. So as someone editing that, I know what's an error and, and what's not. And given um, the fact, like I said, from one version of revision of the work to the next, when it comes to the, to the dialect, it's easy to have added an extra letter or it's, it's not there and it should be there. But, and, and even to know when it comes to dialect also is that a speaker never pronounces every word exactly the same way all of the time. And so you have to tune into that. Tune into that not only in terms of the voice of the speaker, but also in terms of Hurston's particular stylistics as she's recording that, how she writes that phonetically. So given that I have the background in uh, black English, uh, teaching it, studying it, doing some publishing on it, then my ear and, and my heart is trained to that. And so that came in very nicely in terms of knowing, okay, is, is this an error or is this the way it was Hurston meant to represent this term in this contextual situation? Those kinds of uh, things came up. And, and so um, I just... I just, my, the background that I have, including, of course, Hurston herself, having some knowledge about her work and some knowledge about what's important to her and whatnot, and what she try, she's trying to do as an ethnographer, because ethnographers, when they're doing their job, you, you know, they're, they're doing their best to maintain the quality of that particular speaker. Uh, in terms of how it sounds, in terms of uh, the syntax, in terms of the repetitions and all of that kind of thing. So um, knowing not only that, you know, Hurston is adept at, at writing dialect, also knowing that that's a very important aspect of an ethnographic skill that she respected and I needed to respect as well. So all of those things came into play in editing the work. How did you come about the work of Zora Neale Hurston to begin with? <laughs> okay, to begin with, well, I I found Hurston's book in the, the Shrine of the Black Madonna Bookstore in Atlanta, Georgia, and it was on. What can I tell you? I I, I was in graduate school at Atlanta University at the time, and um, even as a graduate student, I had never heard of Zora Neale Hurston. And so it was just by accident, in quotation marks, that 
I saw a cover of a book that I really liked. Caught my eye, the colors and orange and green and whatnot. And uh, I glanced at it and, you know, read a few pages and were like, yeah, I have to have this book. So I read it and it just, I had never read anything like it before. And I was a pretty avid reader and um, I had never seen my culture or myself in print the way she represented us. So when I read Hershen, it's like I was reading myself. And, uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, the lyricism of the language, the, you know, this, this was my language. That's, that's the way people spoke around me. That's how I spoke. Their behavior patterns, the communal qualities and, you know, uh, the cultural expressions and what have you, I identify with all of it. And it just amazed me that, that she had such a snapshot of my life. <laughs> I'm like, how do you know this about me? How do, you, how, do you know, how do you know that my minister says these things on, on Sunday morning? These are the proverbial expressions. I'm used to hearing him say, how do you know that? How is that in that book? It's like she knew so much about me. And I just, I'm like, how, how is that possible? Of course, you know, there's something called culture and there's something called folk culture. Being immersed in it as I was, I didn't know it was something that was studied, something that was common across cultures and that kind of thing. But of course, she was an anthropologist and she had gone through, I think, similar kind of thing herself when, you know, she said her culture was fitting her, you know, like a tight chemise and she had to go off to Bernard and, and study it, get the spyglass of anthropology to understand what her upbringing was about. And so in some kind of way, uh, that was my experience because I'm like, how did she know me so well? And uh, I just felt like she knew me so well, I wanted to get to know her. And so, so I began to read her work. And uh, I read that and I found Dust Tracks on the Road and Music Man. And when I went to uh, University of Nebraska where I worked on my PhD, I just had a commitment to her that every class, I didn't care what it was, if I could find a way to uh, write about, talk about Soren and Hurston, that's what I did. Every opportunity was an opportunity to learn about her. And eventually I wrote my dissertation on Dust Tracks on the Road, actually. And, uh, well, it's been Hurston ever since. In your book, Every Tub Must Sit on Its Bottom, The Philosophy and Politics of Zora Nor Hurston, you wrote about the ways in which the style and content of Hurston's work um, was shaped by Eatonville and her experiences in Eatonville. Could you elaborate on that? Um, how did Eatonville shape Zora Nor Hurston? Well, there's just so much. We can begin with her family life, you know, with her mother who uh, exhorted her and all of her children to jump at the sun. I mean, how special was that? You know, this is, um, it may not be the source of her self-confidence, but it certainly, I would think, uh, supported and inspired it and, and also protected it. Her mother was very protective of her. And I think that's very, very important. 
And then there's uh, her father who, as Hurston says, just a, how does she put it? A little of her sugar to sweeten his coffee or something like that. He, you know, he had one girl child and that was enough for him. And he, his patience was short when it came to uh, Hurston. And, but at the same time, he was the mayor of the town uh, three times, right? And he was a very popular preacher. And, you know, she was enamored of her father's ability to regale the, you know, congregations and uh, just very impressed with what she calls uh, his barbaric uh, folk poetry, right? And you can see this in her work, the structure of the folk sermon, you can see that as it uh, is manifested even in something like her autobiography, uh, The Strikes on the Road, those formulations as such. And uh, I mean, and, and there are so many examples of that. And then there's the whole business of uh, that communal quality uh, where people gathered and talked and told stories or swapped lies or whatever they call that, right? And, and that, that call and response uh, of, of African tradition and what have you, that the orality of African descended peoples, you know, she captured that in, in her writing. And so all of these aspects of, of culture and community, and these different forms of, of cultural expression, she embodied that. And, and not only did she embody it, I think what's was very important is that she loved this, right? She had a love for her culture. Uh, a lot of people may have grown up in, in such environments, but you know the external world can have you feel some kind of way about your cultural heritage. And you know sometimes people will deny it or do their best to repress it. And Hurston never did. She always somehow knew the genius that was embedded in the culture of her people. And, and rather than you know, be uh, defensive about it or, or, or feel somehow negative about it, she embraced it and she expressed it, not only in her literature but in her own life, right? So, um, so Edenville, the, the idea of black people um, expressing their genius, building a town, running the town, um, all black, right, and, and and doing it so so very well. The idea of Booker T. Washington comes in as, you know, the philosophy of self-help and the philosophy of industrial education and all those kind of things. These were foundational tenets of, of Eatonville, and Hurston had imbibed that too, which, you know, sort of shaped her politics and philosophy in terms of individualism. So, so much about Edenville, and I can say, almost I can say, I think everything about Edenville uh, shaped her thought as well as her choices in terms of, you know, what, what kind of work she would do, what she would bring to that work, and all of that kind of thing. You know, Hurston never felt um, inferior to anyone, and I believe that Edenville had a lot to do with that. Maybe not everything, but a lot. And so feeling like you're enough, 
feeling like you're as good as the next person. Not necessarily better, but certainly not less because somehow you're inferior. This, this is nothing that she ever entertained because she didn't see this, you know, growing up. What she saw was success. You know, she saw people do things, build things, you know, run uh, a city, run a school. All of these positions of authority, she saw that and she saw people who were of African descent doing those things. So um, that affirmative kind of attitude and, and that loving disposition that she had about black people and black uh, culture um, inspired her work. And it, I think it was a light for her own life. How has people's knowledge of Hurston and Eatonville evolved over time in your perspective? I visit Eatonville from time to time uh, when there's a festival and sometimes when there's not a festival, right? And so, but the fact that this is the 30th anniversary of, of uh, the festival, I think speaks uh, volumes about um, how the people of Eatonville have, have uh, I don't know, grown in, in their knowledge and wisdom about Zora Hurston. What we know about this festival is that it's it's part of the the organization that was formed to preserve the Eatonville uh, community, right? So that it wouldn't be torn asunder by expressways and all of that kind of thing. And uh, and so the festival becomes a part of that particular project. But in that, you know, what it expresses is is the importance of, of black culture. And it, and it shows again how the genius of a people is a people saving grace, right? So the idea of saving the town is recognizing the town's history, which is a part of culture, right? And then celebrating that uh, and doing that in, in this particular instance by way of also remembering and celebrating, you know, one of Edenville's very own geniuses, and, and, and that's Zorna Hurston. And, you know, when you look at those who come to Edenville to speak, to talk, to listen, to learn, to do research, to share research, and all of that, it, it speaks to what Edenville has become. Prior to, what is 1989, I, I think it was, you know, most people would, uh, at least outside of Edenville, most people would say, Edenville, what, where is that? What is that? Or, or Hurson's or in a Hurson, who are you talking about? So certainly um, Edenville has, has played a major role in helping the world to know who Zorna Hurston is. And, uh, and so I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a situation where you know, Hurston uh, helps the town, and the town uh, helps people to appreciate her legacy. That's great. With Barracoon just coming out, and this festival being, you know, right after that pretty much, mm -hmm. and this being the 30th anniversary of the Zorna Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, I think it comes together um, well because, um, you know, it shines a light on her work. And uh, I wonder if you could tell me, what do you think the legacy of the book Barracoon is going to be? If the current reception is any indication, 
that I think uh, Barracoon is going to have a long, rich, deep, extensive legacy. I think one of the things it does, it, it, it does so many things, it, specifically in relation to Zordon and Hurston, what it does is that it shows us uh, this other genius that Hurston is. You know, we know her as as a writer that you know is just brilliant. Uh, but most of us don't know or didn't until now uh, really appreciate the depth of her knowledge and wisdom as an anthropologist. And uh, the fact that Barragoon is uh, her first book-length work, and it is a work of social science, not, you know, fiction, right? So it, 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 uh, it gives us a deep appreciation of Hurston as a quite revolutionary social scientist. And I think most of us had not heretofore um, perceived her that way. So we get another dimension of Hurston with this book. In and of itself, Barracoon is, is a part of history that has been missing. And that will just, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about that for some time to come because we just don't have that many stories about that phase of our, our history where we learn what happened on, on the continent. You know, we've got narratives by people like Frederick Douglass, who wrote more than one, and Linda Brent or Harry Jacobs. But, but these, these narratives are of people who were born into the condition of servitude. But what we get with Barracoon is the narrative of someone who was forced into the condition of servitude. And then we look at the details of how he was forced into that. It gives us some understanding about, you know, what Donna uh, Richards, who's also known as Marimba Aini, it, you know, she talks about the Mayafa. And this is a Kiswahili term, which means disaster, and the human response to it. And what we get in uh, Barracoon is some sense of what that disaster was about, that deracination, that uprooting, that uh, being cut off, disconnected, just so brutally ripped away from everything that you know, and how traumatic that is. Because when we read Kosala's narrative, we feel that pain, we feel that grief, the loneliness, is, is heartbreaking. And so this, I think, is a dimension of uh, what is called the transatlantic slave trade. I call it the uh, trafficking of Africans. <laughs> you know, we get a dimension of it that adds the, the human dimension. Most of what we learn about the, the forced migration of, of Africans through the Middle Passage and all of that, we learn about it in terms of history and economics and sociology and geography and those kind of things. But what about the humanity? Uh, there's so very little of that. And as Hurston writes in her own introduction to Barracoon, she says, 
you know, we, we have the words of these ship captains and, and their books and merchants and whatnot, plantation owners and what have you, but what of those who experienced it, those who experienced this Mayafa? And she says, we can hear that in Kosla's words. And so this is a whole nother other aspect of our history and culture that I think we're going to be examining for a long time because one of the things that is horribly wrong in America is that too many people have too little compassion for others. And uh, one of the things that Kosla's work has to see is, you know, how vulnerable we are, how we are affected by, you know, mean treatment, you know, and, and, and how this can traumatize people. We look at, for instance, what happens at the border these days where, you know, children are separated from their mother. This is not different from what happened with Kosla. When these Amazonian warriors attack Bonte, he's looking for his mother. When they're trying to line him up with those that they have not slaughtered, he says, let me go find my mother. He's, this man is looking for his mother. How different is that from children who are being forced away from their mothers, uh, screaming and, you know, in those, in Kosla's day, I mean, where's his consolation? Who's helping him with that kind of grief and that kind of disconnection and discord and chaos? You know, at least today you have psychologists and therapists and they're saying, this is traumatic, you need to stop that. You know, the social, social workers, the sociologists, they're stepping in to say, this is not all right. And because they know how traumatic this is. And it means that we haven't learned enough from our history because we keep repeating it, you see. And we keep repeating it because we don't, something in us as human beings has not been touched, has not been touched. But I think one of the things Barracoon does is that it helps us to see this humanity that we all have and Kosala's uh, willingness to be vulnerable, to be open, to cry with this pain and this grief, it allows us to touch humanity. You know, we, when we hear him, when we listen to him, it's like just having, in some way, you touch the pulse of this man, you feel his heartbeat. And when we can do that with him, it allows us to touch our own. It's been so wonderful talking to you. Um, I thank you for your time and for taking part in this podcast. It's been great meeting you. You're very welcome, Ms. Holly Baker. Thanks for listening to Every Tongue's Got to Confess podcast, the official podcast of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Holly Baker and I produce this podcast with assistance from the University of Central Florida, the Association to Preserve Edenville Community, and Michigan State University. Be sure to find the rest of the episodes by searching for us online and subscribing to the podcast. See you next time.